The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 48 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Confident that if I had spent as much time on my schoolwork as I did studying Wizards reports on 90s Marvel action figures, I would have won the Nobel Prize. I'm Adam, and hey, Happy New Year, geeks! This is our first episode of 2022, and to celebrate, I've invited a couple of fellow action figure enthusiasts who know that those plastic superhero playthings which flooded the aisles of Toys R Us and KB Toys back in the day didn't spring from the fertile mind of Avi Arad, but those wacky comic books! So first up, it's a man who wishes his fellow Canadian Todd McFarlane would get off his duff already and produce a full line of V television miniseries series action figures it's chris bailey aka charlton hero hey what's going on adam i'm super excited to be here tonight this is this is a show i would not miss and i will tell you if you're talking about v action figures guess what this guy got for christmas a 3d printer oh no oh yes this guy <laughs> is going to be making his own stuff so you never know you never know wait for wait for charlton hero action figures coming your yeah way. coming soon nice Next, but certainly not least, is a YouTuber who wasn't content to merely document the toys of Earth, instead setting his sights on the entire galaxy. A man who used to feature the Shadow movie board game in the background of his videos, which endeared me to his content all the more. From the Toy Galaxy YouTube channel, take a seat, Ryan Seacrest, because this guy's the host with the most. It's Dan Larson. How you doing, Dan? I'm Dan Larson. I'm happy to be here with uh, you, Chris, and Adam. Picking up on that Shadow board game in the background that's a deep cut there that hasn't been out for a while that dates when you found us oh well i have one of my own it's here in my office and the minute i saw it i was like these are my people (laughs) (laughs) excellent excellent now dan you guys over at toy galaxy recently did a video about the rise and fall of wizard magazine in which you were kind enough to mention our podcast we had many people come on over and say oh found your show from toy galaxy loved it it's great so we want to hear about your love of the wizard family of publications and the rest of your history with the world of comic books so please tell us your origin story Absolutely. No, comics have been there forever. Uh, I remember my mom, you know, when I was, you know, five, six years old, I remember my mom, you know, buying comic books, getting to read them after she was done with them, you know? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that was definitely a hand-me-down from there. She, my mom was into all kinds of, you know, all the superhero shows, the sci-fi shows. She took, I remember her taking, you know, my older brother and I to go see, you know, Battlestar Galactica in the movie theater, all that stuff. You know, we were watching Super Sentai shows in Japan and, you know, Knight Rider on TV here in the U.S., everything. So that's definitely something i got straight from my mother and as far as comics go it's it's always been there but i started buying my own and picking out my own comics at that same age that you know a lot of kids
kids get into it right around seven, eight, nine, you know, you've got a buck, you've got two bucks. And at the time that could get you like almost two or three books. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, we're talking like 84, 85, you know, in that sort of range there uh, before we got to uh, $5 cover prices or anything like that. So I was collecting comics regularly from very, very early on. And by the time, you know, Wizard starts, I've got my exclusive, you know, local comic shop that I'm shopping at every single week. So the minute Wizard hits the shelf, the very first issue, I'm there from issue one, Wizard Magazine, Spidey in the Wizard Hat, Todd Rowland cover number one, immediately got a subscription and, and was just locked in till it till it ran its course. Same with Toy Fair. As soon as Toy Fair hit, uh, that was a dream come true. Now, based on recommendations from Wizard, were there any particular books in the 90s that you were dedicated to that were of that era? All the popular stuff, you know, once Image started, everybody was picking up Image stuff. So, you know, Spawn, Wildcats, all that stuff. I was right in the middle of that. Every number one that Rob Liefeld put out, I at least tried it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. You had to. You just knew we never knew where any of that stuff was going to go. And you didn't want to miss any of the big pieces of the puzzle. So, you know, Jim Lee's putting out something, got to grab it. But then, you know, beyond that, it was all, it was still pretty Marvel dedicated, especially up to 94 before Image starts. It's mostly Marvel. Very, very, very little DC in my background, you know. So I was part of that group, you know, Spider-Man, uh, X-Men, Punisher, Daredevil, Marvel Comics Presents. You know, those were books that I was buying on a regular basis because it was all about the X-Men. You know, it was all about X-Men. Punisher was my favorite character. <laughs> So I followed those guys right over to Image, just hook, line, and sinker. Wow. And was there a particular moment in reading Wizard that stands out to you? Like, was there an article? Was there a joke? Was there just a section in there that you always jump to? I thought I was going to be a professional comic book artist growing up and for years and years and years. In fact, I made a $50 bet with a friend of mine, senior year of high school, that in 25 years, I would have been a professional comic book artist. See, it gets a little gray because I don't remember exactly what the bet was, but I still want to collect. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, Gentlemen, we can stop right now and make our own comics. We can do this thing. I can get well, you know, I have self-published books. I have self-published books out there under my own company, so I don't know if that counts as being a professional comic book artist. I have paid for and taken a huge loss on books that I've made, so I think <laughs> that counts. So I need, I need my 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this is the avenue. If he was into comics enough, maybe he's listening now. Yeah, to answer your question, it was the Brutes and Babes section the, oh. with, with Bart Sears, you know, drawing board, all that stuff, learning how to draw, seeing how these guys were doing it, you know, finding out the secrets. And, and it was always funny to me because, you know, Bart Sears was doing that section for a long time, but I never knew what books he was doing. Like, what, why isn't this guy huge? His art is amazing. <laughs> you know, it Bart. didn't make sense. Bart Sears was incredible. I mean, you take a look at his work on Justice League. I mean... I I was blown away by what this guy was doing and it just didn't make sense that this guy didn't reach like Liefeldian heights it didn't make sense to me. well the reports that we've gotten thus far on the show that have come through wizard magazine is that bart was not a fan of deadlines and he would get taken <laughs> oh. off of books he would get the job and he could not keep the job he would have been perfect he would have finished then <laughs> yeah. yeah he would have fit right in yeah deadlines schmedlines all right well it sounds like you definitely were interested in that behind the scenes and everything to do with making comic books and i think that we might have a little bit to discuss here as we open up willie lumpkin's mailbag
All right, now this is really interesting, guys. This was the lone letter we needed to address this time around because, ooh, there is a shocking violation of ethics in the comic book industry known as swiping. And there is a reader here named Brutus Yoon of Troy, New York, who is blowing the whistle. So here we go. Dear Wizard, I've been collecting comics for three years. I first got into comics when a friend of mine showed me a copy of X-Men number one. The story was good, but the art really grabbed me. It was phenomenal. I never knew comics had come so far since I was seven or eight years old. I'm 20 now. At any rate, I've become a very avid reader and collector of comics drawn by Jim Lee. Recently, however, I picked up Wolverine number 88 and I was totally shocked at what I found inside. There were many instances in the art where drawings were practically copied from Jim Lee's work. When I say this, I don't mean the art was copying his style of drawing. I mean that the drawings were practically traced from previously published Jim Lee work. There were instances where I think the artwork of Wolverine 88 was downright copied from Jim Lee's work. Look at these! couplets as he calls them and so literally like he has five different points where he says hey look like in wolverine 88 page 15 panel number four vanessa is in a fighting stance saying your girl copied from wildcats number one pages 28 to 29 where zealot is in a fighting stance saying greetings brother grifter and so then wizard has dropped in the panels for comparison and there is no denying here right <laughs> and so goes on to say i've read around a thousand comic books since i've started collecting and I don't think I've ever seen this kind of blatant copying of artwork ever before. I don't know if this is illegal or whether there's an unwritten rule that lets comic artists copy another person's work, but it seems to me that Jim Lee's rights are being trampled on. And so Wizard goes ahead and responds to this. There's an unwritten rule that allows comic artists to copy a previous work, but it definitely doesn't apply in this case. Very often a famous cover scene will be redone with new characters or situations in what is commonly known as a cover swipe, quotation marks apply. Check out Amazing Spider-Man number 306, for example, which is a mock-up of the famous Action Comics number one. Cover swipes are generally recognized as tributes to the original and always carry a notation of credit to the original artists involved. Such is definitely not the case here. They say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but if I were in Jim Lee's shoes right now, I wonder what size he wears. I wouldn't be feeling too flattered. Two pencilers were credited in Wolverine number 88. And I think whoever drew these panels ought to be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> Damn <Yeah>. it. <laughs> So what is, what is your thought here, guys? I mean, the evidence is obviously very clear. There, there's no doubt about it. But uh, as far as, you know, the practice of this swiping, you know, the, the idea of basing your work, they're mentioning specifically like cover homages. But on the interior of a book, have you guys ever encountered such a blatant example of swiping? When you think about comic book swipes, it's a thing that's been happening from generation to generation. I mean, nothing new here. Think about the covers that we've Scene. And let's let's flash back to the 80s. How many times have we seen Justice League number one? How many times have we seen that group shot over and over and over? How many times have we seen Art Adams Wolverine ripped off over and over like Rob Liefeld? He rips off himself. <laughs> He takes some of his own work and copies it just with a new character. I mean, it, it's predominant, and I really – I'm not sure about anyone else, but I really don't have a problem with it. I think, you know, if you're doing a proper homage, we'll say, um, I don't think that it's a problem. But I think if you're copying wholesale someone's work and calling it your own, yeah, maybe that's crossing some boundaries. But I'm cool with the echoes, as we'll say, Adam. Yes, Rob Liefeld. <laughs> 
big fan of that term. But Dan, how about you? This I really, really think crosses the line. And I'm glad in this particular issue, they actually put those insets in to show two of the examples that this person specifically cites. When all the the creators of Image left, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld, I'm sure the edict went out at Marvel. Get us artists who can do that same sort of style, because that style's hot right now. And whoever this penciler and inker are, I think they took that a little further than Marvel had intended. (laughs) Like, we want the Jim Lee sensibility. We don't actually want you to copy Jim Lee panels, you know, and I'm guessing if we know who who, who actually penciled these. Well, so we do. I, I, I have the issue here, this Wolverine 88, and it, Wizard is very careful not to name yeah. the artist. <laughs> call him out, yeah. Now, the artist at this time on these books was Adam Kubert, but it, they said specifically there are two pencilers. The other penciler is a guy named Fabio Laguna. There's also two inkers listed, which tells me that there was the regular group, which is Adam Kubert, and probably was running out of time, so they brought someone else in to finish up the pages that he couldn't get to, and so I think the blame probably falls on that new team that would come in. I'm going to imagine that Adam Kubert is not swiping from Jim Lee. Yeah, it's one thing to sort of pay tribute to an artist that you like, might be a friend of yours, you might even be, you know, exactly. comparing the two characters sort of subconsciously or something, but this is just line-for-line line copy. It's This is not okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's different when it's like a big splash page or a cover. This is in the middle of a book, a couple panels, and you're like, okay, so yeah, you just <laughs> didn't want to do the work yourself and found somebody else's poses, so. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was definitely a headline for those of us reading the magazine, but Wizard had a few headlines of their own, so it's time that we get into Wizard News. Hey, I gotta, if you don't mind, I gotta stop you for one second here before we move on from the letters column. I don't know if you noticed the envelope art section. There are four artists that are listed here. Angel Anthony Mendez Jr. from Valley Stream, New York, Sam O'Dolan and Al Ray Mish from Racine, Wisconsin, Tong Thor from Fitchburg, Mass, and Frank Cho from Beltsville, Maryland. Oh, wow. I totally missed that. He didn't even get envelope of the month. This wasn't peak Cho, as we'll say. Well, this is like the second occurrence of a Calvin and Hobbes letter art getting the award. So I think there was just a Calvin and Hobbes bias in Wizard. I think that's the case. Yeah, yeah. I was shocked when I saw that. I was like, oh my God, Frank Cho. Because I'm, I'm always looking through old Wizard magazines and Toy Fair magazines to see if I recognize any of the names, whether it's in the letters column, the writers, the artists, or whatever. And Frank Cho just jumped off the page there. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. What is Angel Anthony Mendez up to right now? <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, Angel, let us know. <laughs> From Wizard News... Uh, it's reported that Superman writer-artist Dan Jurgens will be writing and drawing a new Spider-Man comic for Marvel with inks by Klaus Janssen. Quote, because of what they've done with this whole clone scenario, it's really sort of a clean slate. And maybe this is as close as Marvel will ever get to doing some of the things that John Byrne did when he restarted Superman. Not exactly a one-to-one comparison for the Spidey situation that Jurgens ends up working on, but it is monumental for, as Jurgens states, I don't know if anyone has written Superman and Spider-Man at the same time before, unless you count Jim Shooter writing these Superman-Spider-Man crossover books years earlier. Of course, this project is eventually revealed to be sensational Spider-Man starring Ben Riley as the titular wall crawler in a brand new costume. Did you guys read this title or the clone saga that preceded it? Were you all in on the clones, Chris? Was I in, all in on the clones? Of course I was. At this point, <laughs> I was a massive, massive Spider-Man fan. You know what really killed this? It was like in wrestling when they had too many people in the NWO. It just went on forever. 
But let me tell you something. At the beginning of the clone saga, when you got to find out that they did not kill off the clone and he was still alive and it was Ben Riley and, you know, he took Peter Parker's place in the comic books and a flashy new costume and, you know, he had everyone show up. He had Kane and then you got the symbiotes involved. Oh, this was craziness, Adam. Now, looking back, I know this is, you know, I've just blacklisted myself on the Internet by saying I love the clone saga. <laughs> but I think people are certainly starting to come around to clone saga nostalgia if there's such a thing. What do you think yeah, for me, like, it was definitely something where I probably took my cue from Wizard. It was like, oh, that's a dumb idea. And I, like, I, I didn't pay attention to what was happening in the main Spider-Man books. They did a series of annuals that was a storyline called Planet of the Symbiotes, and so I bought that, because I was like, oh, the Scarlet Spider's in this. I'll find out what his deal is, aside from what Wizard has reported to me. And I was like, okay, well, he doesn't seem that interesting. He doesn't do much. But as soon as Dan Jurgens did the Sensational Spider-Man number zero issue that was huge for me i was like a new costume ben riley is the permanent spider-man now then i started buying like the first storyline was media blizzard so i bought all the spider-man titles that month like so i got into it once ben riley was around but the status quo beforehand and all the build-up i wasn't really interested in it was a triple whammy for me one you had you know image was making such a big deal all artists that i was interested in had gone to image so i didn't care for the art style at the time so that was strike one on strike two was <laughs> I really, really didn't like the hoodie costume at all. Uh, and then strike three was I was still on the edge of not realizing how events like this worked and not really being totally clued into the fact that all of this stuff is temporary. <laughs> you know, like you've got to have these sort of sensational things that happen to drive the next sort of arc of books to keep things interesting for a character who's been around, you know, since the 60s. So you come out with this is him. He's the real Spider-Man. This is the guy. And his name's Ben Riley. And I was like, well, that's not, that's not going to work for me. I got to go. You know, so I, <laughs> I checked out. I was out. <laughs> it's like with the black costume initially, right? People are like, oh, what are you doing? You're changing up a classic. But then they just kept with it for like years. They kept the black costume, at least in a few of the Spider-Man titles. And this it was like a total status quo change, at least for like a year and a half or so. Because I mean, when they did Marvel versus DC, like it was Ben Riley in there. They did a lot of like crossover stuff and it was all the ben riley spider-man so they really stuck to their guns longer than you would think i guess is how i felt about it I think the money was coming in hand over fist. In fact, I think in some industry interviews, we heard that, you know, it wasn't supposed to last as long as it did. But so much money from this event, they kept the thing going and going and going. Well, and I got to tell you, there's one weird kind of fun fact, and that is that there was a, an episode of the Big Bad Beetleborgs TV show where they went to a comic <laughs> book convention, and they were filming there, and there was this huge Marvel booth in the background of, you know, that there was their display for that convention, and there was the Ben Riley Spider-Man up there, and I was like, wow, forever <laughs> in history of television, Ben Riley is Spider-Man. Well, Chris, what do we have next? Well, we're going to talk about Bone Creator Jeff. Jeff Smith. Now, he has decided, starting with issue 21, will now move Bone to Image due to the recent changes in distribution when Marvel went exclusive with Heroes World and DC went exclusive with Diamond Comics Distributors. Boy, is that dated a little bit <laughs> when you consider what's happening today. But listen, Smith explains, I've heard some of the frightening things about what distributor catalogs that are left will be like. Going over to Image puts me in their part of the catalog. Smith also plans to reprint the first 20 issues 
a bone through image with all new covers that will be released simultaneously with brand new issues. Smith clarifies that he essentially is still self-publishing, but just has joined forces with a bigger independent for distribution. Now, I will say for me, I didn't find Bone. I mean, I probably saw him in the pages of Wizard, but I didn't see Bone comics until the image logo was on the cover. That's when I remember recognizing, oh, Bone's a legitimate thing. Right. Are you guys into Bone prior to this? I hate to admit this, but I knew of it before it went to Image, and to this date, I do not think I've read a single issue, despite the rave reviews that I have gotten from everybody I trust on comics. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's funny with Bone, because I, I have the whole collection here, but I've only recently read it. It's just been something that's been sitting on my shelf. It felt a little juvenile, and the first book, like, I have three volumes, and uh, the first, I would say, arc is really almost Smurf-like. Like, it has, like, this Smurfy-type feel, like, almost like, a, you know, an 80s cartoon type of show, and then it all of a sudden just becomes Dungeons and Dragons, man. It really, really picks up. It is pure fantasy, man. That's what I was gonna say. You have an Elf Quest podcast, so it only makes sense that Bone would be <laughs> up your alley as well. I do. <laughs> well, next up here, the Hildebrandt brothers, best known for their Marvel Masterpieces 1994 fully painted trading card set, are creating an original character named Covenant, who will debut in the pages of Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti's Ash Number no. 5. Not only will the issue feature a Hildebrandt painted cover on top of the standard cover, but the Covenant character will be painted into the panels of the book by the Hildebrandts as part of the pages that will still remain standard pen and ink that are done by Casada and Palmiotti, so cre it creates an interesting blend of styles. And the brothers state that they will wait and see what the reaction is to Covenant before committing to any future appearances of the character. And I will just say, I had reviewed the first four issues of Ash on a previous mini-episode, and so while I was out in California on a trip a couple months back, I just was going through some back issue bids, and I ended up picking up issues five and six, not knowing I would need it here. And it really is, I sent you guys some pages to look at. What is your thought about this blending of a painted character into just the kind of standard comic book art. I think it's a fascinating approach to making the book. It's always neat to see, you know, different artists come together and thematically, in terms of the narrative, it absolutely gives you that sort of separation between the two. Yeah, it really works. For sure. That said, I've I've always liked the Hildebrandt's style, but there's not much there that I've liked beyond that. You know, like, they're fantastic, brilliant artists, gorgeous color, uh, but this design isn't really doing much for me. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, Exodus from the X-Men comics. It, it looks really trading cardish. You know what I mean? It does. It has that look. And you know what I mean? You know, when um, what company took over when uh, when Marvel switched? Remember when uh, they, they weren't allowed to use proper Marvel art? And they, I think it was Fleer, was it? Yep, Fleer. Yeah, and they and they used just the painted artwork. This is what, this is what it reminds me of. Yeah, it is pretty uh, intense color-wise and everything else, the finished product. But like Dan said, I think in this particular story, it works just because Covenant is supposed to be this otherworldly being from the heavens, you know? So, of course, he's he's kind of of a different dimension. He shouldn't fit into our reality. Yeah, and for the for listeners, he's got kind of a, a Morbius the Vampire face. Yes. Archangel's metallic wings. And then, yeah, like a, a lightning lightsaber. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, you always have to have the lightning lightsaber. That's going to sell some toys. Well, I will say it looks great on the printed page. And speaking of printing, Dan. This just in, Wizard Special Report, Paper Hikes, Pressure 
Future Comics Prices. This explores the reason for the recent increase in the cost of comics. It's explained that comic book prices have always faced price increases due to the cost of paper in any given year, but between 1994 and 1995, the cost of newsprint increased by about $150 a ton. This is cited as the reason that publishers like DC Comics have chosen to move away from newsprint to a higher quality paper because, quote, while the better paper costs more, its price is more stable than that of lesser grades. Gentlemen, do you like it glossy or prefer the pulpy, disintegrating paper smell in your nostrils? <laughs> uh, I gotta say for me, like, I, I, I guess when I think about the glossy paper, it always looks better for color, and I have to imagine the colorists really appreciate it when their work is preserved on quality paper. But I mean, I want, I want to literally inhale the book, right? Like, I... <laughs> I want it to become a part of me. There, there is a a tactile feeling of that paper, and there is also just yeah the 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 coughing you might do a little bit later after you've inhaled enough of the <laughs> the older vintage issues. But what about you, Chris? Oh boy, there's a certain smell that used to appear, and like a an aroma that you used to find when you used to go to a comic book store yeah. in like the late '80s, early '90s. That sort of disappeared. I remember the first time I ever saw an Image comic, and it was at a grocery store, and it was actually Spawn number one. And when I took a look at that thing and compared it to what I was reading with Marvel, I was like, this is the future. Oh my God, this was, it was so incredible. Like the slick quality paper, the beautiful color. And you know, the, you didn't have that. You guys ever remember like some of the old newsprint comics, like the color separations were like slightly off. So yeah. things were like, only oh, partially sure. yeah, I mean, that was great. <laughs> I, I I had an admiration for that type of stuff. But uh, listen, if, if you're comparing dollars to donuts and you want to say, you know, which is better, obviously the glossy paper look is better for, but for an Nostalgia purposes, give me the newsprint. And plus it's cheaper. <laughs> Dad, where do you come down on this debate? You know, for nostalgia's sake, uh, there's nothing like, you know, opening up one of those older books, you know, like you said, late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s that I, you know, really, really grew up on. And you can see the, you know, the little Bende dots and all the printing yes. process and the color separations, all that stuff. Basically, it matches what you're seeing in the Sunday comics as well, because it's also on newsprint. <laughs> as I understand it, a lot of the shift towards this glossier stock had to do with the way that, you know, comics were being colored and printed at the time. They're starting to move towards, you know, electronic pre-press. Uh, you're starting to see a lot more digital work coming along. And then later on, uh, you know, more so at the uh, end of the 90s, coloring is being done with electronic programs, with Photoshop, with Illustrator, with these kinds of programs, as opposed to just being, you know, painted. They're not painting on the boards anymore. <laughs> yeah. And that's changing the way that they capture those images and the range of color that they can actually render on those pages. So it, it is absolutely a mark in time this shift towards that kind of paper but it's coming from both the creative side and the actual physical cost side <laughs> yeah have you ever seen dc's wednesday comics they were like an extreme oh, yeah. like yeah yeah i mean those were incredible those were those harken back to the days of the old print and all that stuff you know they they presented the you know the old color the older paper stock and i think it really worked as like a real throwback and i think you know what if a comic book came out today and was printed on that paper i think i'd be okay with it. well speaking of the uh the old days here i think we got to go back Back to the early days of punk rock. What do you got for us, Chris? MTV. We're going to be talking some music. Remember when MTV had music, Adam? <laughs> I do. Well, this one talks about MTV Super Rock TV show convinced rock icon Glenn Danzig, who actually hosts an episode. The former Misfits frontman insisted that it be filmed in a comic book store because Glenn Danzig is cool. And as a longtime reader and publisher of his own Verotech line of comics, which sold at Boots at all his concerts, in fact, Danzig borrowed the horn skull logo on the first album cover from the issue of Crystal, the crystal warrior the toy line 
comic from Marvel from the 80s as seen on Toy Galaxy. Just a cheap plug there, Dan. (laughs) If we're talking swipes, there's a pretty uh, famous one. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Most people wouldn't know, but we comic fans that happen to also cross over to the world of punk rock, we know. Yes, thank you, Michael Golden, for your contributions to Danzig. There you go. (laughs) I tell you what, if you're talking Christar, so there's one figure in particular, and I think he came from the Christar line. If, If I'm not mistaken, it's by Remco. And these guys were, you know, they were not the highest end. They were not Kenner, we'll say. You know what I mean? <laughs> Safety wasn't a thing that they put at the forefront. And this guy had these really pointy fingers. And you talk about Boba Fett launching rockets into kids' eyes back in the day. Well, this figure, I'm telling you right now, I had some battle damage as a kid from that. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. yeah I think most people didn't know that there was a comic book tie-in probably at the time. Again, unless you were checking the subscription page in the back of Marvel Comics. <laughs> Christar, the Crystal Warrior. But next up here, it's reported that the Bongo comic Simpsons Treehouse of Horror issue for 1995 will contain stories written by Starman scribe James Robinson, Bone creator Jeff Smith, and there's going to be a Little Shop of Horrors parody by Madman creator Mike Allred. So if you are a completist for any of these comics creators, you'll have to track down this issue. Apparently, it is essential. Did you guys get deep into Bongo comics? Were you enjoying what the Simpsons had to offer? No, I never. I never ventured outside the show itself. I wasn't that starved for Simpsons or Simpsons Universe uh, <laughs> related <laughs> content. I was I was content to just wait for the next episode. So this this was in the I used to discover Simpsons book because it was in the dying days of uh, you know when you see comic books at the grocery store for example like Marvel and DC had pulled out but for some reason Bongo stayed there forever. If you go really? to a Walmart. Yeah, in my area, Bongo Comics were the only ones on the shelf for some reason. You know, you go to a dentist office, Bongo Comics. I don't know if it was just a local thing. Wow, I want to live in your town, Chris. Oh, these things appeared <laughs> everywhere. They were basically toilet paper at the gas station. <laughs> Imagine that. That is impressive. Wow, way to go, back raining. All <laughs> right, well, let's get into the meat of this issue, gentlemen, as we check out our table of contents. Now, just to start out here, in Wizard Bullpen News, this issue actually features an invitation for fans to participate in the fourth annual Wizard Halloween Costume Contest. Dan, you've been known to wear some costumes on your show. <laughs> Did you ever cosplay for Wizard? Did you send no, me a picture? That was before I had embraced as part of both my entertainment and my identity. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this time around, they're trying to get you to dress up by showing you copy editor Andrew Carden dressed up as his rock star hero, D. Snyder, a celebrity who had recently toured the Wizard offices at this time. You can actually go back and check out Andrew's episode of The Wizard Files, where we interviewed him. He gave us the full story up top, and actually, we kind of put together a little collage of the reports about this, posted it on social media. D. Snyder himself retweeted it. So, <laughs> D. remembers that day. It seems like he can get D. Snyder for like $5 to appear anywhere. He knows how to promote himself. He's the Rob Liefeld of rock. Yes, he is everywhere, staying hungry. Now, there's also a teaser announcing that the latest wizard scavenger hunt will be coming up in issue 50. And finally, the Gen 13 cover from Wizard number 44. We're told it won the 1995 Visual Club Production Cover Show Award. Oh, my God. Goodness. <laughs> you have won the day. <laughs> wow. We created this just for you, Wizard, to win this award. <laughs> I remember reading that back in the day, just being like, wow, award winning, Wizard, yeah. way to go. <laughs> 
But as we get to the cover of this issue, we are dealing with a Jim Ballant illustration wherein he is drawing Catwoman once again, and she has stolen Wonder Woman's lasso of truth and Supergirl's cape. Oh, she is trouble. But she has just got a look of glee on her face while the other super gals are... <laughs> A little upset. It's weird because I expected there to be like a story behind this or something, but in the Wizard Big Book of Covers, it's just like another Jim Ballant cover. It looks great, you know. <laughs> Ugh, I not I'm not a Jim Ballant fan at all. Oh, oh, no, me good. I gotta say, <laughs> definitely not. Never cared for his work. I, you know, if you like it, you like it. That's fine. It's like all three ladies on this cover. They're in practically the exact same position. Like, you know, and I get trying to cram, you know, multiple characters into a frame like that, leave room for the masthead, all that that stuff uh try to tell a little bit of a story but man i don't want to do the anatomy breakdown thing but just like i don't know just compare catwoman's knee to ankle on her right leg to knee to ankle on her left leg and it's like there's like an inch and a half difference i'm like holding the actual cover here <laughs> and it's just so like you can't explain that with foreshortening it's just it's a thing that's that's for sure <laughs> look at the grimaces of Wonder Woman and Supergirl in the background there. I mean, they are super pissed. <laughs> Justice will be served, Catwoman. Oh but, you know, speaking of the proportions and all those things there, Dan, you know, this cover story in this issue is called You've Come a Long Way, Baby? With a question mark on the end, which is an exploration of the portrayal of female characters in comic books by Beth Hannon Rimmels. Now, the main premise of the piece is... That while female comics characters have, yes, come a long way for being helpless damsels in distress, they are in the 90s instead now being presented as the idealized physical specimen of desire to a heterosexual male audience. So they asked the writer of the Spectre, John Ostrander, his thoughts, and he's quoted as saying, What I find in some areas is this reactionary thing where all women look like models, wear skin-tight suits, have breasts larger than their heads, and wear spiked heels while running around doing battle. I don't think that works. <laughs> of course, there's the popular cliche of bad girls, as they call it, being mentioned, but Francesca Polito, the vice president of Chaos Comics, states that, quote, Lady Death has a huge female following. Women are happy there's finally a character who is drop-dead gorgeous, but she's not a victim. She doesn't take crap from anyone and stands up for herself. So Chris and I just read Lady Death on a mini-episode, and we found, you know, Lady Death was kind of in that middle ground, as, as she was described here, you know, attractive, but complex she's in control of her journey but definitely presented in, in a way to get your attention but <laughs> in that same way uh, other female heroes they've cited as examples of characters that have improved over time is wonder woman and batgirl and catwoman and the invisible woman she hulk supporting characters like mary jane and lois lane although it should be mentioned i think preceding this article there's a very suggestive ad for a neil adams comic called Sabari. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the character is shown from behind in a thong and everything is there on display. And then she seems to be looking at a vampire with a woman sprawled on the ground in her underwear. And uh, there's just, you're just like, okay, <laughs> maybe Wizard was trying to prove a point with the placement <laughs> in the design of this issue. But I have to ask you guys, how would you describe the difference in how female characters are written and drawn today in comics versus this era of the 90s, if at all? Oh, go ahead, Dan. You start. <laughs> 
Oh boy, that is a whole show in and of itself, right? <laughs> like, full disclosure, I have not read many comics in the last, let's see, we started doing the show in 2015. I haven't read many comics since 2015. I just sort of, you know, stepped away from comics, went all in on toys and action figures. So I can't speak very much to how current day characters are being written uh, and, and a lot of the, the art as well. Um, I know that the trend for the last sort of 20, 25 years has been a, a more ground approach uh, and a more realistic approach, especially with the advent of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, to make these characters feel more real. You know, costumes have pushed towards being hyper-complicated, both male and female, you know, men and women costumes, hyper-complex with just overly detailed, overly designed, but also costumes that have become, they look like you took them out of your own, you know, dresser, the hoodies and, you know, jeans and embroidered logos on a t-shirt and that kind of stuff. So it's gone sort of in both directions. As far as the (laughs) comparison with how characters used to be presented, it's no secret to anybody that comics are a male-dominated field, both in terms of writing and art. And traditionally, going back, the customer was always very young male. So you end up with characters, both male and female across the spectrum, that are idealized forms. Many times, their costumes are just lines drawn on a naked figure. (laughs) So (laughs) it's hard to say that any of that has necessarily changed. Oh, you know, the the arm is colored flesh color instead of blue, so now it's naked, you know? That's a weird thing. And there's always been that, and this applies to video games and movies. You always get the male hero's power is shown through the armor and the strength and the muscles and those sorts of things. But the women's power and the the competency and their fighting prowess and all of those things is shown by not having to have any of those things. She's strong because she's not wearing armor. She's strong because she doesn't have a gun. She's strong, you know, that that sort of thing. So I get all of that. (laughs) And in the context of comic books, I just sort of let it all go and say, well, that's comics for you. And I know that's not a great response. (laughs) So I think if you want to find books that treat female characters in a better way, more realistic, different kinds of power, not just the depth of their cleavage, you can find those books. But I think the, the genre is what it is still to this day. Hmm. Interesting. Chris, do you have a different take? I think they're, I think especially the big two, I think they take a more of a safer approach this day and age. They're less likely to have the anatomically incorrect, you know, lady splashed all over the covers. Now, you know, you have some areas of the, the comic book landscape, you know, over in the maybe um, that, you know, are, are more likely to present this style of man-driven artwork, we'll say. <laughs> but, you know, we talked about Frank Cho earlier on. So Frank is one of those guys who, you know, he he's still old school in a little bit. So, you know, he's more than likely to have, you know, the female character falling out of her bra for example or oh oh my goodness look i've lost my pants heaven forbid you know (laughs) so you know uh, there's still a few artists that still do that style, but I think with cancel culture and a few things like that, there's extra steps and measures put in there to make sure that females are represented in a more realistic light instead of being, you know, seven foot tall and having a zero inch waistline and, you know, an incredible bust line. I think that still exists, but to a lesser level. And if you're talking about writing, you know, it was a male genre previous to this. And, you know, I, there were girls reading it, but, you know, always the, the hero, at, you know, on the front forefront of a team was always a guy. 
guy. Now you get to see people like Captain Marvel taking leadership and Wonder Woman, for example, into Trinity is much more powerful and much more to the forefront than she's ever was before. So, you know, a lot of things needed to change, but definitely I see a big difference from 1960s uh, women presentation being tied to the train tracks to, to right now today. Well, and I think there are also a lot more female comic book writers these days than in the 80s and 90s. Like you had standbys like Louise Simonson or Anna Senti or Joe Duffy and eventually Gail Simone here in a couple years in our timeline with Wizards. So I think you have a perspective on female characters that is more informed by someone who yes. has lived a life as a woman. <laughs> Correct. Yes, exactly. That makes a big difference nowadays. But also, like you say, yeah, the proportions are less Barbie or Playboy idealism than the 90s with characters being fully clothed for the most part. But I think also it's interesting when you take into account like the fact that somebody like Harley Quinn is neck and neck with Batman in terms of like pop oh, yeah. culture recognition in this day and age. Like that says a lot that there's like a female hero that could be pushed that is accepted by pop culture and by a lot of females that say, yeah, I like this character a lot. I mean, Dan, you can you can attest to this. I mean, sometimes there were toy lines that would have a female character and they would never make the character because, hey, girl toys don't sell. It was a thing that people never even gave a chance to. And it, oh, it sure. Was, One uh, of the best examples of that is the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, where Hannah Dundee in the comics is that sort of, you know, 60s pinup style. You know, the bare midriff, lots of curves. Then the cartoon comes out. The toys are made from the cartoon. And when it comes time to put her out and they can't not put her out because she's such an important part of the world, they try to tone down all those elements as much as possible to the point where one of the creators literally says they thought maybe they could trick the young boy customer into thinking it was just another boy figure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is another evolution that's taken shape, you know, is that female comic book characters are able to be written with less comparison to male characters. They could just kind of stand on their own as the focus of a story and a headline a story. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's nice to see that change is happening and hopefully it continues and you just say a cool character is a cool character. But even in the 90s, there were some good books that were being written, you know, that I think... You know, treated female characters with the respect, but I think the majority of what was popular and what was people were looking for was that was not the case. Well, I think that, that it really speaks to if you've cultivated an audience over, you know, 30, 40 years of comics existence that is predominantly, overwhelmingly, practically, you know, 100% male then then that's what you're going to get. And it's going to take time for the creators to diversify to where it's not just a single white male voice writing these things. <laughs> yeah, know? but I think it's great that Wizard was willing to address that at this oh, time. 100%. And, yeah, put that in here. And hey, hey, guys, think about it. Publishers, writers, readers, what do you really want? Do you want just a good story? How about it? Yeah, but of course, the years <laughs> that are to come here uh, leading into the late 90s certainly don't do this art give it any favors but dan you talked to us about your ambitions as an artist and i think this next article might be up your alley we'll brush off as an exploration of the unsung heroes of comic books the inkers or if you're a kevin smith fan the tracers longtime jim lee collaborator on <laughs> x-men and wildcats scott williams says quote inkers are kidding themselves if they don't think a penciler's job is more difficult but it's not the pencil lines that eventually show up burned 
Famed X-Men anchor Terry Austin adds, I have enough ego to remind myself that every line I put down on the page gets printed, and the penciler certainly can't say that. Ah, right there. Al Gord, known at this point for working on Wildstar Image with Jerry Ordway, explains that there are two types of inking philosophies. An inker tries to keep what's there in the pencils as faithful as possible. An embellisher is imposing his style over somebody else's pencils. It's explained by veteran Dick Giordano that nine times out of ten, the penciler is his own best inker, but... By contrast, Jimmy Palmiotti reveals that his frequent collaborator, quote, Joe Quesada, inking himself is not that good. He doesn't understand the tools, and he'll be the first one to tell you that. The reason often for the separation of penciling and inking duties is the publishing time frame and dividing up the duties gets the finished comic into the hands of the readers sooner. Famed inker Klaus Jansen wraps it up by saying, inkers are no less artists than pencilers. The goals of inking are the exact same goals that pencilers have. End quote again this i feel like on wizard's part very educational to kind of you know the new comics reader right where you're just like oh yeah jim lee's the best he draws everybody so cool but you don't think about the rest of the process well and you really have to wonder about you know pencilers whose names are always followed by the same anchor yes exactly (laughs) you know man listen i i can tell you something i I know we're trying to compare pencilers to inkers but a good anchor can really save a bad piece of artwork you know what I mean? And, you know, some people praise like, say, Steve Ditko, for example, you know, in, in his later years, he was not publishing some of his best works. And, you know, maybe his style was a little bit dated, but some of the inkers could bring him back and make his work seem more relevant and more current and modern. So a good inker and a good penciler together is magic. It's almost not like Alan Davis. It's Alan Davis, Mark Farmer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right on the money. All right. Well, Chris, why don't you educate us a little bit more about how to make those comic books? All right. Learn from the pros. P-R-O-S-E. Now, this is a list. Top 10 tips from comic book writers on how to improve your skills as a writer. So we'll start with number one. Make every word count. Number two. Have something to say. Number three. Dream big. Think small. Number four excite your artist wait a second okay yep number five (laughs) is start big number six pace yourself number seven explain your character number eight vary dialogue pattern number nine find your own style and number 10 be ready to compromise so which pieces really sticks out to you guys what do you think Okay, well, so for me, like, I have always found myself to be more of a writer. I never really had big ambitions to be an artist. I I wanted to create my own comics as well and get into that, but drawing was only, like, the means to get the concept out there, and I always wanted to find somebody that was better than me, you know, my embellisher to to fix it all for (laughs) me. But what really stuck out to me was the concept of exciting your artist when you are presenting a story. It's because it only makes sense that you want the artist to have just as much enthusiasm as the writer for what the scene could look like for the story that's going to play out so they get motivated to make it the best they could be because if it's just like oh well i guess that's my job i'm just working with this guy he sends me a script like they're not going to really care but if you're like collaborating and you're presenting something it's like can you believe this what if we did it this way like there you have you know the makings of an exciting story ultimately in the hands of a reader but it starts with you and your collaborator which is cool 
Yeah, I think I, you're right. For for me, I think number 10 stands out. So, you know, be ready to compromise. And I think that's a big deal because I think by the time an artist gets a script in front of them, it could be two different things. They could have two different visions on exactly what the writer is trying to get across. We have examples in the past where you have these massive scripts, you know, someone delivers a phone book to an artist and now he has to draw it within 20 to, you know, 22 to 24 pages. And they're like, what in the heck am I supposed to do with this? Compromise is a huge piece of the creative process, especially when it comes to artist right for me it's absolutely without a doubt number two have something to say the older i get the more different kinds of art or creation that i attempt the more important that becomes and the more relevant that becomes to me and i would say even to the extent that what i'm trying to say with the piece of art is more important than my ability to execute it whenever i'm trying to think of a composition i still do some drawing here and there i, I just did an alternate cover for an indie book that'll be out later in the in the year in 2022 uh, it hasn't been shown off yet so I can't link to it or anything. But follow me on Twitter if you want to see that pop up at some point here, first quarter of 2022. But even sitting down to compose something like that, even in just taking a picture of action figures for my Instagram account, writing a script, whatever, the first question and the most important question I'm asking myself is, what am I trying to say? What am I trying to communicate to the audience with this thing? And what is the minimum amount of information I need to communicate that? And if I don't have a specific goal, I can't just like throw something out there for creation's sake at this point in my life. You know, like I used to be able to just be like, ah, it's a guy punching a, you know, whatever. It's a thing jumping. It's flying. It's whatever. But now it's really more important for me to say there has to be an idea here. And the idea, everything else is going to follow from that. The jokes I make, the, the lighting I choose, the lines, yeah, all of it comes from what am I trying to say and to serve that mission. All right. Well, yeah, it's interesting here. We, we've talked about the inkers. We've talked about the writers. And now Wizard keeps it rolling here. We got to talk to an artist and get his philosophy on things because this next article here, Favorite Son, is an interview with John Remeter Jr., who has been interviewed by Wizard multiple times before <laughs> in many different issues. So we, they've talked about his career and the fact that nepotism did not play a role in getting work at Marvel, despite the fact though that both his parents had worked there since the 60s so maybe a little bit yeah help you get your foot in the door of course he talks about working on the x-men and the punisher or daredevil but as an interesting follow-up to the inking discussion we just had when interviewed about his work on iron man in the 80s john remeter jr says of the inker on the book bob layton quote he was doing finished inks and i was just doing breakdowns he was a very heavy-handed inker on me because i was an <laughs> inexperienced artist and he basically just says yeah i give all the credit to bob Bob Layton on that one because I, I was just doing what I was doing but the art was him you know essentially so when asked about his Batman Punisher crossover one shot the artist states quote that was a lot of fun but it sold nothing that's lighting the bottom of somebody's birdcage <laughs> <laughs> if it had come out a year earlier, it would have sold a million copies. Timing is what it's all about. But uh, his latest project at this time is taking over the art chores on the ongoing Spider-Man title that we mentioned previously, which Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson have been working on. And so now he is going to jump in and take care of that. And it turns out he has great success with this series. He actually provides a Spider-Man cover of Wizard in the near future based on the success of his run. So I'm curious, John 
Peter Jr. on Spider-Man. Did that interest you guys at all? Absolutely. One of my all-time favorite artists, easily in my my top 10, for sure. One of the first artists uh, of the books that I initially started collecting when I first got into to comics. His Daredevil stuff, his Thor stuff, his absolutely... When he finally got to Spider-Man, it was like, finally, he's doing Spider-Man. How has it taken this long for him to be like on a regular book for Spider-Man? Not just, you know, a, a, an appearance here or there. I have that Punisher-Batman crossover. It's not in my birdcage. It's I have it bagged and boarded in my comic book. <laughs> So take that, John Romita Jr. Uh, I, I love his stuff, and he's always been one of the greats to me. I have an alternate opinion, gentlemen. <laughs> There's definitely some artists over the years that have won me over throughout the years, you know what I mean? As my adult sensibilities have come to light. So Mike Bignola, Jack Kirby, Keith Giffen. And I know it's sacrilege to even mention Kirby as someone that I didn't like in the past. But until you really sit down and try to draw like Jack Kirby, you don't really understand. You're like, you know, oh, my God, you know, look how he draws Superman. It's terrible. And then you try to draw and you're like, holy crap, this is insane how detailed his backgrounds are. If you try to do like Kirby's artwork, like with his technology from Fantastic Four, it's crazy. Now, on to John Romita Jr. Spidey for me was always John Romita Sr., that's that's the image. That's the look that I like. You know, I was not a Ditko guy. I was a Ramita Senior guy. So, you know, that is my Peter Parker. That's my Spider-Man. Ross Andrew, who, you know, sort of picked up the reins and did like his own version of, of Ramita. And then you get like the ultra sketchy lines. By the time Ramita Jr. took over Spider-Man, we had, you know, the mulleted Peter Parker. They were like really bulky frames, almost like the McDonald's Spider-Man toy that came out there from the animated series. The huge frame, you know. Oh, what yeah. I mean? Everybody looks like they're made out of bricks. <laughs> They are. They're, they're really square, like like doorways. But listen, I, I don't know what it was. It You had Mark Bagley on the book. You had Todd McFarlane. They had this signature style where, you know, poses, anatomy, bombastic, you know, almost image style bombacity from your pages. And then you had Ramita Jr. just doing this gritty down to earth. Now, here's where I'm going to caveat here, because I like it now. So when I look at it now, I go, yeah, that is something different style wise. I don't think 90s Chris Bailey uh, had any appreciation for good art because... Uh, because I was all about the image style. I was the Liefeld, the Todd McFarlane, the Jim Lee. And when I saw this, I'm like, ah, oh, this guy can't draw. I was wrong. Forgive me, John Romita Jr. I've said this in the past, and this is really where I always fall, is if John Romita Jr.'s name is on a book, I will not pick it up. Oh, no! <laughs> His art has never appealed to me. Nothing. Like, I just, everything you described about it, Chris, was just me cringing. I'm like, why? Yeah. Why blocky frames? Why sketchy? Why weird? noses why everything just everything he does is so stylized but it's like the exact opposite of anything i would ever want to even just look at he was on daredevil in the 80s and it was during the uh, inferno crossover i think it was the introduction of typhoid mary and i remember picking up those books and i'm going holy crap did a five-year-old draw this like you know i, I don't know that's slanderous i don't mean to say that about him but i recall being that there being that person at the time that just couldn't stand it like you adam you know what i have an appreciation for it now it's comic books because when i look at a comic book today it's so photorealistic you know what i mean it's so computer drawn it's visually not what i want in a comic book and when i see traditional comic book art it, it brings me back and that's what i like right now who knew that john ramita jr was one of the most polarizing artists in the industry <laughs> <laughs> for many reasons apparently you know backstage and on the page but oh. I, I think mostly for me like i need to go back and read some of his daredevil stuff i feel like because i actually do have a couple like of his daredevil issues in, in my long box just because it was 
part of a big storyline. But I think for me, it was more so just like the affront to my senses was on Spider-Man. And that's where it hit me the most. But speaking of Spider-Man, what do we have next here, Dan? A new spin. It's a behind the scenes look at what it took to get the initial 13 episodes of the Spider-Man animated series ready for the Fox network. Stan Lee is quoted as saying, the animation is better than anything we've had before. A feat which was achieved by mixing character animation from Japan's Tokyo movie Shinso with 3D computer animated backgrounds by the American studio Kronos. But much like the early days of the X-Men animated series, there were some issues with the animation as editor Richard Allen relates, quote, I've had animation come back with the heads of the characters missing from the scene. But despite his headless co-stars, the Spider-Man cartoon was an instant hit, matching the ratings of X-Men for the number one spot on Saturday mornings. All this, despite the fact that when producer story editor John Semper got the job, he, quote, was replacing a previous producer story editor who had done next to nothing for six months. Semper explains that when he wrote the first four episodes before realizing a half-hour episode of Spider-Man was not a very satisfying experience. It was like we were coming in on the third act and we were missing quite a lot. So I began writing two-parters, which has resulted in more complete stories. This then led to Semper planning a 13-part season-long story in which Spider-Man has one big problem he has to deal with for season two. This would be the model going forward for the rest of the series. Semper reveals that his attempt to use as much of the comics history as possible, quote, the first thing I did was make them buy me a complete collection of Spider-Man comics must be nice. They had this idea that armed with six trade paperbacks, I was going to be able to create a 65 episode series. I told them, no, invest the money. If nothing else, we need the books for reference. Gotta admire that commitment and it makes you wonder where that collection ended up. This series was heavily merchandised, leading to an extensive line of action figures. Gentlemen, what was your favorite Toy Biz Spider-Man action figure? Oh my God. Oh, Adam, I'm going to let you start this because there was when you're talking toy biz and Spider-Man, I have PTSD. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay, I can't wait to hear this. Well, so for me, when they released the black costume Spider-Man, that was huge because I had collected the Secret Wars figures when I was small. Yes. And I had the classic Spider-Man, I had Captain America, I had Doctor Doom. I didn't know they released a black costume figure for that line. So, like, when they did one in my era where I was cognizant of what was going on, I was like, I can't believe it, they're doing the black costume! But also, the battle-ravaged Spider-Man, for me, was very big, just for play value. That toy was so much fun, it came with a backpack, you know, he was just all ripped up so you could do the battle with the regular figure and then have him come out from behind a dumpster, and then he's all ripped up and he's gotta get back into it and also i will just say like as an added one is the spider-man 2099 figure because i had been reading that series from the beginning so eventually they did the special edition series where they had actually the ben riley spider-man and they had spider-man 2099 and others so like that was a huge one for me i still have that on my wall over here what about you dan for me without question i definitely i'm i'll second spider-man 2099 i loved that book from the beginning uh rick leonardi is definitely in my top 10 (laughs) artists and that's suit it's it would be sacrilege to say it's a better suit to me than original red and blue spider-man so it's like one and then a very very close number two uh and then i'd put black suit number three uh, but my favorite toy biz uh, animated spider-man figure would have to be vulture an incredible redesign for the era you know you're getting away from the bald-headed old man you know <laughs> and the skin-tight bodysuit into this more armored he's got a pistol tucked into his you know uh, armpit there and then the wings especially on this figure and i had both the regular uh you know five inch scale one whatever it was and then also the 12-inch scale version. 
the wings that I, if I remember correctly, there was a peg on the back of the biceps so that when you put the, his arms out, the wings went up and they're like these, you know, sort of jagged saw blade kind of wings. Absolutely loved that design of the figure. One of the best redesigns until the MCU version of the vulture, the Michael Keaton redesign. Oh my God. Somebody should find someone from Toy Biz because they were responsible for those god-awful 10-inch figures. Good Lord. Do you remember the Toy Biz action figures? They were 10 inches. They had Spider-Man in a fisherman's costume. They had Spider-Man as a web blaster. They had him as a skydiver. Oh, my God. And they used that same mold for everything. It was driving me crazy. My kids were super into Spider-Man at the time, and I felt like I was buying the same figure every week with just, like, crappy accessories. And that really, really drove me crazy because I came from the Mego era. So, I mean, you know, 12-inch Spider-Man with the cloth costume you could take off. Then you had, like, I think it was the 6-inch version. I love that. I love the Secret Wars version. My goodness, you know, the Pocket Heroes ones, for God's sake. I loved all those things. And I'll, I'll never forgive Toy Biz for that. But I liked the Venoms. So, you know, one of the classic Venoms, I mean, it goes for a mint right now when you're talking about it. But one of the first Venom figures that they put out was probably one of my favorite uh, overall Toy Biz figures from spider-man line really really dug it and later on in the line when he started adding articulation you could finally do the todd mcfarland poses you know what i mean get those legs up there get the you know fingers in the the web spinner pose and all that type of stuff there was one that really bothered me as well and i'm confident it was a toy biz one it had an like a web projectile built into his hand so he was already posed almost like the the boba fett missile he had this web shoot web thing stuck into his wrist and it and it shot but he was in they were always in crappy poses you couldn't really sit them down you couldn't really stand them up well i wasn't a super big fan of the toy biz spider man line but i know there's lots of love for toy biz out there so you know i'm alone on an island with the <laughs> well a lot a lot of first time characters as figures in that line oh, so i think absolutely there's a lot of nostalgia there but it sounds like more uh for you it was kind of a horror show chris so speaking <laughs> of the horror oh my god speaking of horror summer slaughter it's all about the evil ernie animatronic costume which you know creator brian polito had financed forget this a live action evil ernie movie now the actor himself was six foot nine the whole thing really had like animatronic facial features it had glowing green energy integrated throughout i mean this thing was amazing now fans to be scheduled as the victim that gets killed by evil ernie on stage at the convention as they're comp- complete with like blood bags and different things plus they're trying to get harley davidson themselves to supply a motorcycle so the character can ride in on you know they were ready to go with this this character here so the main difficulty in getting like evil ernie the film made according to brian polito was that some people and we'll get this you know i think this is a uh, a thing that goes on in movies these days they wanted to make evil ernie a comedy but they wanted to insist that they wanted to play it totally straight. So as a result, of course, the movie never gets made. This is so cool, this costume. Like, I remember seeing this back in the day, and also I believe it was featured in, like, a convention shot from an issue of Hero Illustrated, one of the few issues I picked up back in the day. And just every time I saw it, I was like, why is this not a movie? They've got the costume ready to go. And it's just, I just can't imagine. And there's no footage online. Like, I haven't found anything on YouTube. You'd think somebody be there with their camcorder get this on video yeah. you know my goodness like the adam goldberg gigantic you know camcorder and all that stuff but uh, have you ever ran into mall superheroes that's one thing that i don't think gets enough play i remember as a kid 
that at our local mall, the Random Square Mall, which, you know, exactly had, you know, seven or eight stores, they actually had Spider-Man. Now, this was the official licensed one that was actually touring Canada. So you got to take your photo with with Spider-Man. I've actually got a photo, not of myself, but of my friends hanging out with the actual cool Marvel licensed Spider-Man. What do you think of that? How cool is that? That's pretty great. Yeah, that I, I did the same thing because I used to manage a KB toy store in a mall, and we had the official Spider-Man come for a day to meet and take pictures and do songs, but I was just on cloud nine that whole day. I still have the card. It's like this lenticular trading card that came with a Spider-Man versus Carnage two-pack, and I had him sign it and all this stuff. Like, oh I was God. so into I brought homemade web shooters. Because the other thing is, if anybody's ever been to, like, actual Hollywood in Los Angeles, when you go to that area, there's all the superheroes walking out in front. They just have people that dress up as superheroes. You take your picture with them. You're supposed to pay them. If you don't, they will chase you down. <laughs> Yikes. Cosplay is so prominent these days that, you know, it's sort of lost its cool. But let me tell you something, man. Early 80s, seeing a superhero inside a mall, that was the place to be, sir. I can guarantee you that. Absolutely. And actually, Steven Sapellus, co-host here, he is making a movie right now. He's just wrapping it up, UFO Club. And one of the guys in the film was the official Spider-Man for Marvel. He was the Spider-Man that did the Mary Jane wedding. No. Yeah, he was that guy and he was in a bunch of like huge promo stuff in the mid 80s for Marvel and that guy's writing a book right now that is great my Spider-Man was almost like a combination of you know the regular touring Spider-Man but he seemed to have like the Nicholas Hammond belt oh. I don't know what the deal was but there was some sort of belt that I recall that seemed a little odd but <laughs> when I see the old Nicholas Hammond show and all that's like hey I think that's the belt or maybe it's a Japanese one I'm not sure but man what a cool costume what a cool time do you think that kids these days you like have any affection for like you know mall mascots would you would your kids freak out if they saw like endgame captain america now showing up oh i know they would yeah so i just i'm still crossing fingers one of these days however low budget i would love to see an evil ernie if brian polito still has this costume in storage somewhere break it out let's bring back the idea of an evil ernie movie get it done do you think that you would play it straight or would you go for comedy? I think there's an element to comedy, but I think if you ever read an Evil Ernie comic, there's definitely some real dark stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, when you get to the origin, that's pretty dark. And, and I, that's why I always thought like there's a little bit of a Freddy Krueger vibe to it. And so if you had got New Line Cinema to make it, it feels like they would have carried the torch in that way. And kind of, oh, he's our new Freddy. Now it's the Evil Ernie you know, franchise that we're promoting. I think they definitely, like at this time, I think they definitely would have went the mask route, you know what I mean? Smoking! That type of foolishness, but anyway, I digress, sir. But you know, Evil Ernie wasn't the only one trying to get his shot at stardom on the silver screen, so it's time that we buy our ticket for Heroes in Motion. James Cameron's attempts to make a live-action Spider-Man film are revealed through the eyes of Spider-Man co-creator Stan Lee, who, looking beyond the legal issues between two bickering bankrupt movie studios, says, I think this will be the greatest adaptation of Spider-Man that has ever been done. Jim's story is so amazing. Lee reveals that he has seen the 50-page illustrated treatment by Cameron and says the director 
Without doing anything that alters the basic premise of Spider-Man, he has come up with a story that I think is totally full of surprises. I think it will be bigger than the Terminator. Wizard then goes on to drop the rumor that Peter Parker reportedly won't assume the mantle of full-fledged superhero until the story's final scenes. Has anyone here read the Spider-Man script treatment online? If so, what are your thoughts? I have never read it. I don't know about you guys. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I, I have. I've, I've kept an eye on it. It's been, it's been around for quite a few years, and it's really interesting because the beginning of it feels like Sam Raimi was mandated to just rip off a whole cloth for, like, the opening ah. of Peter Parker's kind of origin. But then the rest of the story, the main bad guy is a businessman who's basically Electro, and then Ugh. the Sandman is kind of, you know, the other villain in the story. So it's really weird to start off with those two plus peter parker is a little bit of a peeping tom he's a lot angrier <laughs> and he uses the spider-man gimmick to more than just to win a wrestling match he's using it to try to get the girl he wants you know in a lot of interesting ways so the the fact that it says here that he wasn't going to be in the costume till the end that must have been revised by cameron because throughout the story he is spider-man but yeah it's, it's a really interesting take it definitely fits the 90s but i I'm grateful we got the Sam Raimi version first. Dan, have you checked this out? You know, I haven't. We have it on our list to cover uh, at some point on Toy Galaxy, so I haven't. I haven't dug too deeply into it uh, just yet. Whispers, rumors. I've seen you know bits of it here and there. What I do know is that Stanley is the ultimate salesman, and he could sell. <laughs> he could sell any treatment of Spider-Man that had the potential to make a lot of money to anybody. So I, I take his word for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in line with these adaptations, Tia Carrere is reportedly looking to produce an adaptation of a comic book film, just in general, which she would star as a 90s-style comic book film heroine. That is how they describe what she's looking to do. Uh, at the time of this article, Tia isn't saying which comic she is considering, but we know from our interview with Billy Tucci that she was very involved in trying to get a she-movie off the ground and even promoted herself as the star of the movie at conventions with posters and everything. So if you want to get the details on like all the behind-the-scenes as to why, you Go listen to that Billy Tucci interview because it's really pretty fascinating. Oh, my goodness. Dan, have you ever seen the she character in her costume? Oh, I have. Yeah, I know what it looks like. <laughs> now, I want you guys to both picture Tia Carrera in that costume. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful vision, gentlemen. And <laughs> I wish this came to pass. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Would I have you would have stolen money from my bank account to see that. It feels like that's a movie that should have just gotten made, however low budget so that it could have then been reintroduced, but there would have been like a precedent saying, hey, this got made into a movie. Now let's do the best version of it. <laughs> so that's what I would have said about it, because I think Billy Tucci was like, I'm not happy with the direction this is going. But at a certain point, I think you get a certain value from just having a film made, just like, you know, the Judge Dredd movie wasn't everybody's favorite, <laughs> the Stallone version. But then we got the Carl Urban version, and it was awesome. Oh, come on. We, 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 can't, we can't mention the Judge Dredd movie without saying the line say the line adam say it. i am the law <laughs> yes <laughs> well speaking of movie action 
why don't we dive into Mr. Wesley Snipes, who was actively developing a Black Panther film, which a star says it's fantasy. It's got a good moral message. It's going to be good for adults as well as science fiction aficionados and children. It'll be a great family film all around. Boy, Snipes is really trying to sell this thing. Snipes says apparently was also planning on a comic accurate costume. I'll wear the cowl, he says, like in the comic book, in a nice indigo blue, a rich indigo blue. Yes. Unfortunately, we never get never did get to see the version of this film, but his spin at Blade was amazing. I want to mention one thing about that quote, Chris. It's funny to me that he says science fiction aficionados and children <laughs> and then adult is a different category. So <laughs> like he separated that. And I was like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I like how he uh he thinks Black Panther. He wants his costume to be indigo blue. Well, I think he's imagining how the coloring was in the comics, right? It'd be shaded with blue. And he's like, yeah, so it's a blue costume. It's not the indigo blue panther. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> he may have got that one wrong. But like you said, he was a good salesman. It sounds like he went to the uh, Stan Lee School of Promotion. Talk about it like it's already done deal. That's <laughs> a science fiction aficionados and children. Oh, my God. He's like a carnival barker here. Anyway, it didn't come to... I would have... Listen, I, I'd still kill to see a Wesley Snipes uh, Black Panther film. That would be cool. But speaking of Stan Lee there, Dan... Well, returning, returning to Stan Lee's adventures in Hollywood, it's revealed that the comic book icon has a speaking role in the second Kevin Smith film, Mallrats. Smith explains that he initially had a nebulous comic book creator guy written into the script, but when his producer said that they knew Stan Lee, the part was offered to Stan the man who accepted. Lee jokingly adds, I'll be sending Mallrats around to all the studios, but I keep telling them, don't be throwing the kind of roles at me you'd normally give to Tom Cruise. I want something a little meatier. <laughs> <laughs> that's the guy that's the guy right there and we, and we should mention we are actually recording this on stan lee's birthday oh happy birthday stan we miss you all right but this issue also features a casting call for a live action justice league movie that wizard suggests would be directed by steven spielberg okay so <laughs> it's quite an idea reach for the stars yeah <laughs> What I find interesting about this is there's the infamous young 20-somethings of the 90s pilot JLA film, you know, that is around on the internet. But what do you guys think about some of these casting choices? Let's get into it. I'll be honest. I'd love to see a movie with Bruce Campbell as Green Lantern and Gary <laughs> yeah. Elwes as uh, Green Arrow. <laughs> Just give me uh, that movie right there. <laughs> and look, the the original Marty McFly as The Flash, Eric Stoltz. Yeah, that was an interesting choice. I was like, why? Why Eric Stoltz? But I think it's because he looks he like was, Wally he, West. Yeah, I, I guess he just got the red hairs, got the look. So yeah, that's kind of what it came down to. Now, the, the unknown for me, they, they're talking about Wonder Woman, and they're saying, how about bodybuilder Rachel McClish? She looks like she could throw around a tank or two. And I'm just like, yeah, so she's got the physique. Have we ever seen her act, wizard? <laughs> Speaking of acting, I would pay money to see Lex Luger as the Martian Manhunter. Worst choice ever. Yeah, like man. he's not even bald. <laughs> you would think they would go with a bald, buff actor, but like if you guys have seen Lex Luger on his one turn as a alternate reality Superman type thing on the Superboy TV series of the late 80s. Painful. You, you don't want Lex Luger in your movie. <laughs> 
Listen, Kenneth Branagh as Aquaman. I would do that. Do that one. In any role. I feel like you just, you just put him in there. But yeah, that would, be, that would be very fun to have like a very British Aquaman. Like, that's just a take I feel like we haven't had. But speaking of someone with a little bit of an accent, but sometimes tries to hide it. Uh, we have Sam Neill as Maxwell Lord. Something tells me that Sam Neill was the inspiration for Max Lord here. I'm telling you, that that visual looks like Sam Neill. Also, to have fire in there, they chose Christina Applegate, which, sure, Christina Applegate for any young heroine. They were just like, yeah, like, look at the fashion of fire in these pictures, and uh, we'll get Christina Applegate. That matches her Married with Children wardrobe. Yes, it's perfect. But listen, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. How about Arsenio Hall as Sinestro? (laughs) I think it's just because he has such a long face, and Sinestro (laughs) has a long face you know there's i don't think you could actually shoot a movie with bruce campbell and arsenio hall going against each other (laughs) (laughs) they were trying to out comedy each other i don't think that works As we're saying on the villains here, El McPherson as the cheetah. Uh, I think it's so funny. It's just because in this picture they've chosen, she's incredibly tan and looks orange. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, she doesn't even have to put on any makeup. (laughs) Oh, but but check down in the corner. You got Wesley Snipes trying to creep his way back in as the black manta, or maybe the indigo blue manta. And also, this is like full on like face shape. They totally got it again with Ron Perlman as Despero. They're like, yeah, just put a fit on his head. He's ready to go. Poor Ron Perlman. Now, Cersei, who is apparently a Wonder Woman villain that I was not familiar with, but they're saying Deborah Unger, who is an actress I'm not familiar with. So we'll just take your word for it on that one. But for the voice of Darkseid, guys. Oh, yes. James Earl Jones, yeah. If Darkseid has any connection to Darth Vader, why not? Yeah, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Finally here, they did mention that they wanted to have the Grim Reaper himself, William Sadler, as the Reverse Flash. Which, sure, man, he can play a villain. We saw him in Die Hard 2. He knows how to do it. But then he can be the president in Iron Man 3. Oh, when's he coming back in the MCU? William Sadler, please. Well, there are the choices for the JLA film that could have been but dan it's time that we pass it over to you to take this into your territory you know we recently had an opportunity to rename our action figure segment and one of our listeners suggested action figure apocalypse You know, it's a big month for stuff, and I'm going to I'm gonna close it out with the most important one. But we've got, you know, Reboot, one of the first ever, you know, fully CG animated animated series, cartoons, I should say, pulling out their first line of action figures, which is, as far as representing the characters that were in the show, pretty good, really accurate, nice toy line. Reboot was one of our most popular videos on our channel, so I know that there are still tons of fans uh, of both Reboot the Show and Reboot the Action Figures out there. Yeah, big following. 
Yeah, absolutely. But Toy Biz is doing the Toy Biz thing. Still more X-Men, more Spider-Man, shifting into different specific storylines. Obviously, Age of Apocalypse is being covered here. But all of that is missing the rebirth of Star Wars, which 1995, the last Star Wars figures, real action figures by Kenner had, had been out in 1986. Yes. And we're talking like, you know, droids and Ewoks, you know, from those animated series in the last Power of the Force line. Star Wars had completely run its course. So from 86 to 95, we're only talking about nine years. As a kid in that era, I can tell you that that felt like an eternity. That was a million years later. <laughs> so the return of Star Wars to the action figure was a revelation these were not good figures though <laughs> unfortunately yeah the reaction was oh we've been waiting for this I absolutely got them all every single figure opened them all super excited shiny chrome c3po buff as hell darth vader and buff as hell luke it was so nice to have them back the X-Wing was almost the exact same mold as the original X-Wing. The TIE Fighter was almost the exact same mold as the original TIE Fighter. It's more important because what it actually represented for the toy industry, for Star Wars, and for the future of just action figure collecting in general. They were back in 95, and they have not left since. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I think this line had the, um, I mean, a, an unbelievable version of the droids. I think their R2 and 3PO versions of this are fantastic. And even, actually, their Ben Kenobi figure is really good. But boy, did uh, did they go south with Princess Leia and uh, and Luke Skywalker? I mean, this guy is jacked and stacked. It's so funny to me to know what Star Wars is now. Yes. This juggernaut of a brand. It, things move to get out of the way of Star Wars. Star Wars is everything. But back then, the way they had to convince, you know, Kenner A. Hasbro to get these figures out was to make them able to compete with what was dominating the market at the time. And that was Toy Biz Superheroes. So if Star Wars is coming back, they got to look like superheroes. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. And I don't know. Did they sell well in your area, guys? In in my area, the Power of the Force stuff sold like crazy. It was only when they, uh, you know, when they brought out like the Phantom Menace a few years after that, that Star Wars really died. Yeah, no, at this at this time, it was it was hot stuff. I was going yeah, to absolutely. I was actually in college at the time, 94 to 98. And I was going to school in Providence, Rhode Island, which is right down the street from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, where there was a Hasbro store. The like the actual you could go and shop at the Hasbro store, which was right off of like their buildings, their their headquarters, all that stuff. So I was, you know, getting out of class, driving over there, me and two of my friends to go get Star Wars figures brand new fresh like you know the, they nice. announced them and we'd go buy them immediately i got the power of the force 2 boba fett there lando uh, some of the vehicles eventually it got so big and so popular and so many people were going there that they stopped allowing the public to shop there so thanks star wars <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was totally checked out of Star Wars. So for me, like, like I grew up being called Yoda. Like that was my nickname as a little kid, you know? And so it was like always a part of my life, but I was never like clamoring for more Star Wars. So when they came out, I was like, nope, still buying Spider-Man, still buying X-Men like that. I just stayed on the Toy Biz train. I didn't even pay attention to them. And they had they had moved away because, you know, the three and three quarter inch figure were the predominant toys like all throughout the 80s. I mean, they tried to introduce like, you know, different variations in sizes. So you had like the, the mini figures like Mask and Dino Riders and different things like that. That didn't really catch on super well. You know, three and three quarter was still the predominant size. They tried some really, really crazy stuff with Sectars and uh, Power Lords, for example, where they just went crazy on you know, different size molds and all that Brave stuff. Brave Star, this, yeah. 
Brave, sir. Listen, a very, very underrated set of figures there. Oh, I loved them. I did, too. What do you think, Dan? Brave Star, yeah, I, as a kid, I didn't really get that into them. You know, I, I don't think I even saw the show, honestly. And, and if I wasn't seeing the show, I wasn't going to get that uh, attached to the toys. And I think at that point, you know, you're talking 86, 85, 86, 87, somewhere in there, I believe. There is so much on the shelves, so oh, many yeah. different lines to choose from that I know I got Centurions. I know I got Battle yes. Beasts. I know I was getting Transformers. And, you know, there was just so much out there that was in front of Brave Star for me that my budget the Christmas gifts, the birthday gifts, never got to Brave Star. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a serious question for you, Dan. Did you buy GoBots? Say yes, say it. Oh, of course I did. I lived in Japan. <laughs> Look, hey, listen, I knew them as Machine Robo before they even came to the U.S. as GoBots. I lived in Japan. Followers of, of the Dan Larson Adventures, Toy Galaxy, and whatever are tired of hearing these stories, but, you know, indulge me. <laughs> it's, it's part of who I am. I lived in Japan from 1980 to 1983. So I had Machine Robo toys. And in Japan, it, it, everything's a transforming robot at the time. I had the Robotech Valkyrie before it came to the U.S. as Jetfire. I had Gold Lion before it was Voltron. So I, there was no discrimination for me. I was just like, oh, my God, Machine Robo is here and they're calling it GoBots? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the I feel like the lone GoBots fan on the Internet. I, I, I'm there every every time someone sw- snipes a GoBot online. I'm there to try to rescue them. So <laughs> you'll see me uh, defending GoBots at every turn. Thu Adams is a prominent Transformers reviewer, and he's all on the GoBots train. All right. All right. Well, you know, action figures were definitely the big news of the day, but there was something else that was getting the attention of the kids and their money. It's time that we start flipping through Gambit's deck of cards. So, Marvel's Overpower card game is here, and it boasts 300 cards featuring Marvel heroes and villains with which to create a playable deck. This issue actually features an order form for a wizard-exclusive Spider-Man vs. Wolverine Fleer Overpower Metal Print, which measures at 6.5 by 10 inches. Wizard offered several more in subsequent issues. We actually have them all in the archives. So, you know, there's Spider-Man, Wolverine, there's Venom vs versus Gambit, and there is Storm versus The Thing. These are very strange battles, but I'm curious because I like I personally never got into Magic the Gathering, but I did buy a box of Overpower cards because I was so into trading cards. I was just like, even if I never learned how to play, I'll just keep the cards. But then the art was not what I wanted it to be. Uh, I'm curious, <laughs> do you guys have any experience with Overpower? Oh, you're right. The, the art was miserable on these things, Adam. I didn't play because nobody was really playing cards in my area at that time and i had sort of outgrown that absolutely zero uh i think i got a couple of packs of whatever the star wars cgc was <laughs> everybody around me was definitely into magic but it just somehow missed me you know like i was literally walking through this world of uh, you know college campus of everybody playing magic and i never stopped to, to even try to play it just completely missed me yeah my older brother was like you know old school 80s dungeons and dragons guy and i went to him because i was like you 
always know how to play these types of games, you know, and he was trying to like break it down for me and teach me all the rules and stuff. And I was like, wow, I, I have no interest in playing that. <laughs> like, I'll just <laughs> look at the pictures. But yeah, like I said, not much to look at for the pictures. But I will tell you this, as a part of this celebration of Overpower, because they get a lot of play in Wizard, I have an unopened starter deck that I've been holding on to for years that I will be unboxing for an upcoming YouTube video over on the Wizards podcast YouTube channel. So if you guys want to see me go through a box of these, uh, they will be there waiting for you on that channel. But we have a little bit more exciting and extreme card news, don't we, Chris? Oh, this is extreme. And listen, talk about current. You know, there's there's some word buzzing around, Adam, that profit is about to hit the big screen. So boy, is this timely. Extreme Studios is announcing that a 90 card set based on profit. Yes, profit of all things with half of the cards illustrated by Stephen Platt. Now, listen, who was hotter than Stephen Platt back then? I mean, his Moon Knight stuff, his stuff on profit. I mean, this guy was blowing up. I'm surprised he didn't become, you know, one of the super artists of the 90s. But the rest of the deck was split between Greg Capullo and Sam Keith of the Max Fame. Now, there's also an ad in the issue for Cyberforce Chromium Trading Card with both new art from Mark Silvestri plus Topps Matrix and Clearzo Chase Card. Sounds like acne cream, I think. I think I used some. <laughs> they had She by Billy Tucci, which was also getting an all-chromium card set, which featured brand new art designed by Tucci just for the cards. Don from the, the Cry for Don series is also getting a set of cards, which included 500 specially designed cards autographed by the artist, Joseph Linzer, and even a limited edition medallion card. 500 specially designed cards, Adam. Your chances were great because, yeah, I don't know how many were produced or even bought. I want to know what that medallion card is, though. There are so many card gimmicks. Like, I feel like if you grew up reading comics in the 90s, you're pretty well versed in comic book cover gimmicks. But the card gimmicks, every time they describe them, like, they don't actually give you any details. So he's like, what is the medallion card? Like, please, (laughs) help me out here. But, Dan, you said you weren't playing the card games, but were you collecting trading cards at all? Yeah, so in the late 80s, early 90s, I can't remember exactly when it was released, Marvel definitely put out some card sets, not just yes. that, you know, Marvel Universe card set that everybody's familiar with now that's like super hot again, that Art Adams did like, you know, 75% of the card art. That was bonkers popular. But there were also other sub-series that was like Excalibur, and it was just like, you know, panels pulled from different issues and cover shots and those sorts of things. I think there was a Punisher set. But in the 90s, absolutely my favorite. It was probably the first time I had bought, you know, an unopened box of cards. I think they hit first time in 93 was the Star Wars Galaxy cards. And that was just glossy, high-quality cardstock, and it was lots of, like, alternate visions of the Star Wars universe, you know, lots of different popular artists. I think there's a bunch of Magnola cards in there, too, doing focuses on unusual characters or concept art or book cover art, any of these kinds of things. I think they did them in 93, 94, 95. Those were must-haves for me. I still have, you know, those, not spiral bounds, you know, like card binders with, like, the big clips and you put the pages in it. I still have binders full of those card sets. Love that series. Because, again, there was nothing Star Wars out there. <laughs> Get the Bendem figures. That was all they had for years. <laughs> yeah. Bendem figures in the Timothy Zahn books. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the cards were getting the hype, but so were two gentlemen that had jumped ship for Marvel and had quite a bit of success on their own. So it's time we get into Jim and Todd's Hype Machine.
So Todd's ego column this month is an explanation of why Jeff Smith moved Bone over to Image Comics that pretty much echoes its own words from Wizard News. But Todd ends his thoughts with an open invitation to all small press and self-publishers to join Image. And of course, in just a few years, that becomes basically the new model for Image. You know, they no longer are centered on the fading glory, I would call it maybe, of the original founders, but a wide variety of creator-owned books by many new and established talent so they're just kind of like let's bring in something new something new one of these things is gonna hit oh walking dead finally yes thank you (laughs) we are truly relevant so that was kind of an interesting just like hey everybody if you're a self-publisher you should be with us i was like i wonder how the other founders felt about that it's like uh todd just tell everybody they could get published through image (laughs) jim lee is almost entirely absent from this issue aside from plenty of ads for his various wildstorm comics for which he got a bunch of other people to do the work for him you know like that's kind of what the model was for a lot of these image founders like they did the work it felt like for like a year year and a half and then they just brought in their crop of new talent for their studio and then they said you guys run with it you kids this is our house style you know but interestingly enough it's also mentioned that both todd and jim have alan moore working on projects for them that are advertising this issue so alan moore was writing spawn blood feud and then the latest arc of wildcats which was kind of a rebooted team was also being written by alan moore so he was just the go-to guy you said dan obviously you were big into the image books uh was there a particular creator that you like stayed with like that you kept reading and thought okay this is only getting better no (laughs) (laughs) you know it's it's funny you could not have picked a better name for that company than Image, as far as what ultimately was delivered once they went over there. It it really felt like it was a whole lot of flash and not a lot of substance. Todd, obviously, just before he left Marvel, was really trying to turn into a a one-person comic book machine, you know, doing the writing and the art, but he wasn't a very good writer, (laughs) you know, and then he goes over to Image and kicks off Spawn by, I think, was it the first 10 issues of Spawn that he had guest writers for? Well, he, he he brought him in after the first couple, yeah. He's like, I'm tired of hearing people criticize the writing of my books. I'm bringing in the best writers. Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore. Then they criticized the best writers. It was yeah. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so, the guy could not win. Yeah, I probably have the first, you know, 20, 25 issues of any of the books that made it to 20 to 25 issues. But then I just started sort of bouncing around and saying, like, OK, which which of these artists are actually doing something I think is interesting? Because none of the stories were actually holding my attention. To this day, I will give Eric Larson all the credit in the world for how much he did with that book and stuck with it for as long as he did. You know, being like, wasn't he the sole writer and artist for the entire run? Oh, it's still going. It's still going. Yeah, whether it actually appealed to me or not, all the credit to that guy in the world for being able to do that, where the other creators just sort of, you know, I get it. Hey, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, these guys were getting offers from all over the place. Let's do a movie. Let's do an animated series. Let's do an action figure line. Let's do this other stuff. We got any other ideas for comics. They had to go be big and run their businesses. They had to run their companies. So, yeah, they hired a bunch of artists who could draw like Todd McFarlane, draw like Jim Lee, bring in all these other people. But it's like I wasn't following Wildcats because I wanted to see someone else draw it. I wanted to see Jim Lee draw And if Jim Lee wasn't going to draw it, well, then I got to (laughs) go. Yeah, they missed the point for sure. Let me tell you something. I'll tell you what. If Savage Dragon ever blows up, uh, Eric Larson will be the richest man in the world. The world. 
who's going to play Savage Dragon in the movie that will then make it into maybe himself? He might play. He might write, draw, <laughs> and play Savage Dragon. Oh well, let's get to our tally here as we close out this segment. Uh, in this issue, Jim Lee mentioned one time <laughs> Todd McFarlane. Not much more with three, so this is not a big Jim or Todd heavy issue. But that brings our total to Jim Lee two hundred sixty-nine mentions. Todd McFarlane two hundred and eighty-eight. So that is since the inception of the magazine that is how often they have been mentioned keep your name out there gentlemen but now uh let's uh, close up shop here with a little bit of comedy it's time for turok's top 10 time around wizard is uh having a little bit of fun with the superhero naming convention which during the glut of like 1993 as they called it it was mentioned once in an article it was hard to even get the copyright for a name because everybody was creating so many characters there were so many new superheroes that you could not get your name out there so these are the top 10 superhero names that haven't been used yet number 10 mr it hurts when i pee Oh boy. Number nine, Major Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I get uh, number eight, Bloody Stool. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in what font you use on the cover, right? <laughs> number seven, Hesitation Man and his sidekick, Pause. <laughs> okay, that. that's a thinker. You gotta, <laughs> gotta sit with that. How about number six? We're getting romantic with the love button. Oh, boy. Uh, uh, Number five, uh, continuing continuing the military theme, Captain Open Wound. Uh, (laughs) To himself or the others around him. That makes me wonder if that is a play on Head Wound Harry, the Dana Carvey's character from Saturday Night Live. Massive Head Wound Harry. You're right, yes. Uh, Number four, the ruptured pancreas. Oh, very noble, the ruptured pancreas. They got some gory in this and bodily fluid. <laughs> Straight from Remco's AWA uh, action figure line, Crusher Dave. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how number two works here, but it's Rectal Halitosis Boy. <laughs> <laughs> don't Ouch. think about that one too hard. Do not oh, explore Rectal Halitosis Boy. Do not Google that. Yeah. <laughs> and the number one top ten superhero names that have not been used yet. Keep squeezing them monkeys, lad. Now, gentlemen, do you know what this is the origin of? Keep squeezing them monkeys, lad, for those of you who uh, are not well-versed in wizard history, becomes an actual character in the magazine. They create a full superhero costume for Keep Squeezing Them Monkeys, lad, and it was portrayed by a gentleman named James Walker, who was a designer in the office. He's very active. He comments quite a bit on our social media. I'm still trying to get him locked in for an interview. We must talk to Keep Squeezing Them Monkeys, lad. There you go. Again, some of those names, as uh, Dan suggested, no Googling. You don't want that visual. 
But, uh, you know, if you wanted to Google a good time, you might put Toy Galaxy into your Google machine. But, Dan, why don't you tell us uh, all about some of the projects that you have coming up, some of those uh, comic books of the past that people might be able to track down. What what can you tell us about what you're up to? Oh, boy, uh, any of the things I've published, you'll you'll be hard-pressed to find any of those things. I mean, I have (laughs) boxes and boxes and boxes of them, so (laughs) you'd have to get them directly from the source, and I'm not sure that any of them are currently available. But uh, if you want to find me, you can find me basically anywhere that uh, Toy Galaxy is uh, is featured predominantly most is you know youtube just search for toy galaxy anything um, we've got two channels toy galaxy is our main channel uh, new episodes are published every thursday at 5 p.m we also have toy galaxy 2 which is uh, sort of updated whenever we feel like it just posting all kinds of stuff over there check that out as well you can find us on patreon at patreon.com slash toy galaxy i'm on twitter uh, toy galaxy dan i'm on uh, instagram at toy galaxy find me all over the place search for dan larson toy galaxy you'll find me well, we really appreciate you coming on here and sharing your history and your knowledge. That was great. Now, what about you, Chris? Where can people find the old Charlton hero? Good Lord, you'll find me watching Toy Galaxy, of course. <laughs> Good heavens. <laughs> you can find me over on Twitter, at Charlton underscore hero. Also, I'm over on the Chris and Reggie Network, everyone's favorite ElfQuest podcast. I mean, everybody has a favorite ElfQuest podcast, right? <laughs> Let's be fair. Uh, over with the super podcaster himself, Chris Sheehan, is the podcast Quester days. I also cover wrestling on TV Party Tonight over on the W2M Network with Mr. Mark Radlich of the Radlich Broadcasting Network. And of course, I'd be remiss by not bringing up the Super Blog Team Up, my blogging contingent. And we're going to be coming back in January with Super Blog Team Up celebrating the works of Mr. George Perez. And you can also find me here on the Wizards Podcast Guide to Comics as the Z-String bad girl comics guy and damn proud of it (laughs) we appreciate your involvement chris that is for sure (laughs) gentlemen a very fun conversation a nice night to get together and talk comics of course you can find us on twitter at wizards comics on instagram at wizards underscore comics on youtube at wizards podcast and yes we have many more exciting adventures to come i will drop the bomb michael my long lost co-host is actually coming back for episode 49 so stay tuned if you're a big kennedy head He will be here once again. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.